Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me back for part three of this four-part series that I'm doing on Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. This week's episode, uh, the theme is misconceptions and miseducation that we have about money. One of the themes that I found throughout this book is the reality that a lot of us learn from a young age that we're supposed to go to school so that we can get a job so that we can make money, which has its place and it's important. It's basically how our economy works, but there's little to no education on how to grow wealth. So if you've been keeping up with the series, you know that there are ways to not only work for money, but to have money work for you. And when money is working for you, that means that it's growing, it's expanding by things that you put it into. So we've talked a little bit about investments and things like that. And so this episode, the theme, misconceptions and miseducation, kind of continues along that. And then the final episode next time will be on some practical tips and ways to kind of get out of the what the author calls the rat race. So I'm going to start with a small quote. It's not how much money you make, it's how much money you keep, end quote. And so that is a very concise but very powerful statement. And because I'm such a fan of Lauren Hill, I must give her interpretation of this from her song, Final Hour. She says, it ain't what you cop, it's about what you keep. And what the author of this book, but also that song is saying is that a lot of people in our, you know, society, they focus on the amount of someone's salary or the prestige that a job might have. And I hope that it's been conveyed through my review of this book that I'm not saying that money is bad. I'm not saying that wealth is bad. I'm not saying that working is bad. But I think most listeners would agree with me that what you make is not equivalent to your actual wealth, because there's a lot of people who make six figures or more, but they're impoverished from a financial standpoint, meaning more money is going out than is coming in. And we'll get a little bit more into some of those terms in just a minute. So next, I'm going to share kind of my piecemeal, you know, chunk of quotes um, that I put together from this particular section of the book. And it's going to explain a little bit more in depth about, you know, things like net worth and the difference between a liability and an asset and stuff like that. So I hope that you find this helpful. Quote, too many people are too focused on money and not on their greatest wealth, their education. If people are prepared to be flexible, keep an open mind and learn, they will grow richer and richer despite tough changes. If they think money will solve problems, they will have a rough ride. Intelligence solves problems and produces money. Money without financial intelligence is money soon gone. So when people ask, where do I get started? Or tell me how to get rich quick. They often are greatly disappointed with my answer. 
I simply say to them what my rich dad said to me when I was a little kid. If you want to be rich, you need to be financially literate. If you are going to build the Empire State Building, the first thing you need to do is dig a deep hole and pour a strong foundation. If you are going to build a home in the suburbs, all you need to do is pour a six-inch slab of concrete. Most people, in their drive to get rich, are trying to build an Empire State Building on a six-inch slab. Our school system, created in the agrarian age, still believes in homes with no foundation. Dirt floors are still the rage, so kids graduate from school with virtually no financial foundation. One day, sleepless and deep in debt, in suburbia, living the American dream, they decide that the answer to their financial problems is to find a way to get rich quick. Construction on the skyscraper begins. It goes up quickly and soon, instead of the Empire State Building, we have the Leaning Tower of Suburbia, the Sleepless Nights Return. I cringe whenever I hear people ask me how to get rich quicker or where they should start. I often hear, I'm in debt, so I need to make more money. But more money will often not solve the problem. In fact, it may compound the problem. Money often makes obvious our tragic human flaws, putting a spotlight on what we don't know. That is why, all too often, a person who comes into a sudden windfall of cash, let's say an inheritance, a pay raise, or lottery winnings, soon returns to the same financial mess, if not worse, than the mess they were in before. Money only accentuates the cash flow pattern running in your head. If your pattern is to spend everything you get, most likely an increase in cash will just result in an increase in spending. Thus, the saying, a fool and his money is one big party. A person can be highly educated, professionally successful, and financially illiterate. End quote. So a lot is kind of covered there. I'm going to comment on a few things that kind of jumped out of me from this section. So I'll share a few more quotes and then I'll give some commentary. So here is the difference between an asset and a liability. So I've kind of alluded to this in the previous episodes, but this is kind of the concise Cliff Notes breakdown of what these things are. So, quote, rule number one, you must know the difference between an asset and a liability and buy assets. An asset puts money in my pocket. A liability takes money out of my pocket. The rich acquire assets, and the poor and middle class acquire liabilities, end quote. So a lot of what I've just shared and have been talking about in this podcast, I, I've said it many times, but my intention is not to sound judgmental. When I say something direct, it's because it's something that jumped out at me personally. And the best way to learn something is to teach others something that resonated with you. So as far as this is concerned, I think, you know, through reading this, my perspective on the difference between an investment and a liability has definitely changed. I'm 29, so a lot of people my age or in their 20s are buying homes. And, of course, people buy cars, too. And when you deal with a realtor or a car dealership, they'll say, oh, this is an investment. This this home is an investment. Or when you buy a car, they'll try to talk you into getting 
uh, additional coverage, like an extended warranty or something. They'd be like, well, you need to protect your investment. This author does a really good job at debunking these myths because a car is not an investment. Everyone knows that the second you drive a new car off the lot, it depreciates. I've talked about this in the a couple episodes ago, but I bought a new car in 2019. The sticker price was around 34000 I have paid that car off. However, just last week, just out of curiosity, as I was kind of, you know, reading through these notes that I've been taking and stuff, I checked Kelly Blue Book to see, well, how much is my car worth? So I paid you know, the 34000 plus interest from the loan that I had, but the car currently is only worth 22000 So there's a huge depreciation in that. So math will show us that that is not an investment. That's a liability, right? It's something that's going to continue to lose value. And as the author said, an asset or investment, we can use those uh, terms interchangeably, An asset puts money in my pocket, a liability takes money out of my pocket. A car is a liability because it's going to take money out of your pocket. Uh, I have to pay car insurance on it every month. I have to pay personal property taxes on it. Even though I have paid off the car note, that was money coming out of my pocket that is not able to be used for something else. Uh, I have to put gas in it. And then though it's a new car, newer car now, down the road, uh, pun intended, it is going to need maintenance and it's going to require upkeep and new parts and labor and stuff like that. So a car is a liability. It is not an investment. So I, I like how the author puts that into perspective. And so the same thing goes with a house. We're in an interesting time right now because the housing market is what they call very hot, right, in the United States. So the the supply of houses is less than the demand, which means more people want houses than there are houses available. So what happens when the supply is low and the demand is high, the prices go up. So I've heard, you know, I've had clients who tell me, well, my house is you know, appreciated and appreciate means that the value has gone up. It's appreciated, you know, $50,000 during all of this madness, right? So some people are selling their houses to make a profit. That's fine. But no one really talks about the fact that when you sell your house for a profit, you now don't have a place to live. So if you buy another house, you're paying those inflated prices. Did you really save any money? Yeah, maybe you made 50000 when you sold your house, but now you have to buy a house at a markup. So between a car and a house, they're not assets or investments. They definitely take money out of your pocket because the same thing with a car, which, you know, with a mortgage, people tend to borrow money for that. So you're paying interest. You're paying a monthly installment to pay that mortgage. Most people on average spread it over 30 years. But in addition to that, you're paying, you know, for maintenance, anything that goes wrong, you're responsible for that. I know uh, my wife and I bought our house right before the COVID-19 lockdown. And since we moved in, while we got our, our house on a great deal, it was before, you know, the market was really crazy like it is now, we got our house on a foreclosure and paid 
well under market value for it. But along with that, it needed some work. So we've had to put in new floors. We've had to, you know, have an electrician. We've had constant, like we've had so many things that we've needed to upgrade and fix and stuff like that. So while people will, you know, the people who are, you know, working with us when they were trying to sell us the house and things like that, they're like, oh, this is an investment. You can, you know, and they, people say when it comes to houses and stuff like that, they're like, oh, this is a great starter home. My personal philosophy is I hate moving. So when my wife and I were looking for a house, I truly wanted to have the mindset that when we buy a house, I want to buy the house to live in. I don't want to be one of these people who buys a house, lives in it for five to 10 years, sells it, gets something bigger, and then starts the whole mortgage process over again. And so we were very intentional when we bought our house that we got a two bedroom because it's just my wife and I, and we have one child. We don't plan to have any more children. So it's just enough room. So it's the perfect size for our size of family. It was reasonably priced. We, you know, and we've been able to put the the work into it to have it feel like home and things like that. But I think using my own example, this is that application piece that I've been trying to incorporate into these episodes is that despite the fact that if we're looking at the current market, my house is worth, last time I checked, it is worth about $60,000 more than what I borrowed to pay for it. Meaning in the time since we've moved in, our house became $60,000 more valuable aside from the fact that we put any work into it. So if someone were to come and appraise it based on like the new floors and all the upgrades and things like that, that we've done, I'm sure it would be valued at more. But what I'm, the point I'm getting at here is that despite the fact that this is a rare instance where the house value has gone up, it's still not an investment. The only way that it would be an investment is if I buy it at a low price and I'm able to generate money from it, meaning I'm able to make a profit in addition to paying for the asset itself. Bringing all that back together, a home is not an investment. The only time a house can be an investment is if you're going to somehow use that home to generate income for yourself that exceeds what you put into it. And most people, when they buy a house, it's for the purpose of living in it. And that is a liability. So it's going to take money out of your pocket. And a liability doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. A car is a liability. I explained I have a 2019. I love my car. Yes, it's a liability. Yes, it's going to eventually deteriorate and break down and require more money to maintain. Just like I love my house, my house is 101 years old, it's quaint, it's cute, it's, you know, um, got some, you know, quirky historic features to it and things like that, but it is still a liability. As I explained, we put lots of money into fixing things because it is 101 years old and I can't look at it as a, an investment because this is, is a roof over my head, it is, you know, a safe place, it's a, a place that I can work from, it's a place where you know, I can raise my daughter and enjoy meals and stuff like that. But it's not an investment. This house will not make me money. The only potential way that it could become a an investment is if I'm able to sell it for a profit. But then it's subjective if you think of the profit, because 
if I sell it, I still got to have a place to live. So I hope that makes sense. I hope that it didn't sound too complicated, but I really wanted to share that application example of the difference between an asset and a liability. Um, And to kind of reiterate that part of the rich acquire assets and the poor and middle class acquire liabilities. So to summarize that, people, you know, this book is called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, to become rich and uh, to accumulate wealth for oneself, you have to have assets, which based on the last episode, assets are things that you purchase that will grow your money, such as a, a stock or bonds, or, you know, there's different vehicles for assets. So when you have assets more than you have liabilities, meaning when you have things that you've invested in that grow your money, that outweighs the amount of things in your life that you've bought that take money away from you, that's how wealth is built, right? You can't be wealthy if more money is going out than what is coming in. And that's just basic math, right? And so that brings me into the next thing that I wanted to comment on that kind of extends this. And that is, uh, let me just share a couple of quotes, and then I'll kind of give commentary. So quote, when it comes to money, high emotions tend to lower financial intelligence, end quote. And so this the way that the author said this reminds me of another author that I really like, uh, Dr. Justin Colson. He writes a lot about like uh, parenting and stuff like that. Um, and his uh, kind of catchphrase or thing that he says a lot is when our emotions are high, our intelligence is low. And I think that's pretty applicable if you think about any financial um, kind of situation that you might find yourself in. For example, Think of like Black Friday. They they it's a marketing gimmick to make us think that um, this is a once in a lifetime thing, or uh, because it's such an exciting day and so much stuff is going on, our emotions are high, right? We feel like we have to compete for these things or whatever. Well, the other half of that quote is well, when our emotions are high, i.e., we're excited, frenzied, you know, uh, feel a sense of scarcity, our intelligence is low spend way more money than we're supposed to. But here's the next kind of point I want to get at. Quote, wealth is a person's ability to survive a number of days forward. Or if I stopped working today, how long could I survive? Although net worth often includes non-cash producing assets, like stuff you bought now that sits in your garage, wealth measures how much money your money is making and therefore your financial survivability. End quote. When people say, oh, the United States is the wealthiest nation in the world, it's false. And I said that, I believe, in the last episode, the United States, for all intents and purposes, is bankrupt because we owe a astronomical amount of money to maintain the society that we have. Um, there's a huge amount of debt. And this week, as I'm recording this episode, I'm sure a lot of listeners have been, you know, clued into what's going on in Washington right now. This actually happens every few years. And it's kind of a situation where the United States government has to decide, well, how is is it going to pay its bills? The government has been indebted for way longer than I've been alive. And the trend is, well, borrow more and more and more, the debt will go higher and higher because 
our government is a reflection of society as a whole. So, I mean, this is not a soapbox to talk about consumerism and gross excess and stuff like that, but read between the lines. History tells us the government has never defaulted on its debt, meaning it's never gotten to where the government can't pay its bills, despite the fact that we are still indebted, right? So the likelihood of a shutdown slash catastrophic thing where the government doesn't pay its bills and there's pandemonium is very low because history tells us that they always figure it out. But it ends up being like a power play thing of, well, if we don't get what we want, we're not going to vote to make this happen and this catastrophic thing can happen. I remember when I was in college, this used to freak me out because, again, if you don't have financial intelligence or, you know, literacy, things will cause fear, right? But the more that you educate yourself and understand how things work, you can have a little bit more peace in this very unpredictable world that we live in. So I say all of that to say, you know, when we go back to what the author was saying about like wealth is the ability to survive if everything stopped, people like to say, oh, well, so-and-so is wealthy because they have a mansion or they have this nice car or whatever. What you have is not necessarily an indicator of how long you would survive. Like I said, a lot of people exceed their what they bring home. So they borrow or they spend more than what they make. So you're, by definition, bankrupt or indebted, right? You, you don't, like, if you were to not be able to work all of a sudden, you wouldn't have the resources to survive. You would need to fall back on friends, family, government assistance, whatever, right? So somebody with a large salary who is spending more than what they make, they're not a wealthy person. Uh, just like there's the myth that the United States... And obviously, I'm a United States citizen. I've lived here my whole life. I'm not, you know, <laughs> shitting on the United States in particular. But we we have this myth that the United States is the, you know, the most powerful, the most, uh, you know, wealthy nation in the world. And while, yeah, we have a lot of stuff, we have lots of, you know, modern conveniences and things like that. If we're looking at the numbers, we're not wealthy. You can't be wealthy if what you owe exceeds what you're bringing in. The United States government and the nation as a whole, we spend more every year than what we produce. I mean, that alone debunks the myth that we're the wealthiest nation in the world. And so it'll be interesting over the next week to kind of see how they resolve the issue that is going on in Washington right now. But at 29, I've seen this play out a few times in my lifetime, and they usually figure it out. But it, it makes news, and it gets people riled up and, and scared. It, it's it's scare tactics, and it's honestly a trend. So I'm not worried too much about it, but I think that's the power. Like the author says, there there's definitely some power in being educated and understanding how things work. So... If you haven't been able to tell by now, I definitely geek out over books like this because I'm able to learn things and understand it better. And as a byproduct, I get to share it with you all. So thank you for staying with me through that that explanation. And so I'm going to end with one more quote, and then we'll kind of wrap up for today because I want to you know respect your time. So quote, too often today, we focus on borrowing money to get the things we want instead of focusing on creating money. 
One is easier in the short term, but harder in the long term. It's a bad habit that we as individuals and as a nation have gotten into. Remember, the easy road often becomes hard, and the hard road often becomes easy. End quote. So I'm going to leave it on that. I hope that you've gained something out of this episode. And as I keep saying, the content shared here is not meant to be judgmental or to make a person listen to this and feel bad, right? I share these things because they jumped out at me and they had a reaction with me as I read them. Definitely not perfect when it comes to finances. I'm definitely not financially independent. Um, If I weren't able to work, there would be big problems, right? Um, But I think understanding our perceptions and our beliefs and our behaviors surrounding money and what we do with our resources is so powerful so that we can get to a point where we don't have to freak out anytime something happens, that we have that uh, sense of peace and security because we've done what we've needed to do to have enough to support ourselves and sustain ourselves through the ups and downs of this crazy thing called life. So uh, I'm going to end there. But uh, be sure to uh, stay tuned. The final episode, we're going to talk about some ways to get out of what the author calls the rat race. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that one. But until then, take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Alitu. Podcasting is a lot of hard work, which is why I'm so glad that I found Alitu. Their user-friendly sound editing software has cut my editing time down to a third, leaving me the space to bring you more content. Shout out to Allegra, Judy, and the rest of their support staff who are always there to help me navigate the various challenges this podcast journey throws my way. To learn more about Alitu, go to the link in this episode's show notes to get started with a free seven-day trial. Using my link also helps to support this podcast.